Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. It's my delight to have Kirby Anderson back on the program. He was kind enough to come recently and talk about some things. And we got into the issue of social media and I said, Kirby, help. And so he did. In fact, he sent me a fabulous PowerPoint presentation and a document. I presume, Kirby, this was your point of view transcript. Well, actually, what it is is a presentation I give to various groups. Our booklet is relatively short, as you know, or maybe I should send you all my booklets. They're all intended to be read in about 10 minutes, and I figured you wanted a little bit more than 10 minutes. So Correct. that's uh, what we so, did there. In one of the sidebar comments, I asked you about social media, and you sent me this 32-slide PowerPoint that is amazing. So I want to jump into this right away and talk to you about neuroplasticity and neuroscience. What's happening to our brains when we're thumbing through or clicking in the endorphins. What's going on with that, Kirby? Well, again, neuroplasticity is a big word, and you can always use that to impress your friends. But which, it's which is the what I try to do. That's my goal in life. Uh, and so the idea is, is that our brains are a lot more plastic than we might have thought, which is a good thing, because if you've had a stroke or uh, you've been hit by a bullet or shrapnel in the military or whatever, we can sometimes retrain other parts of our brain to take over those functions. So there's really some tremendous benefits to that. But we also recognize, Michael, that use it or lose it is a philosophy used with the brains. Uh, one of the things I put in the presentation is that if you were to, for example, look at the brain scan of my sister-in-law who plays a violin for the symphony, you would recognize that that part of her brain associated with fingering, because she fingers with her left hand and that means the right hand part of her brain, actually is uh, growing larger. I think anybody that's ever been involved in sports recognize we talk about muscle memory and whether it's hitting a tennis ball, hitting a golf ball, shooting a basket, throwing a football, whatever it might be, we recognize how absolutely important it is to begin to develop those neural pathways. So all of that's the positive. Now let's talk about the negative. Because of social media and because, let's use young people for just a minute, spend anywhere from eight to 10 hours a day in front of screens. That could be a computer screen, it could be your cell phone, it could be a video screen, it could be all sorts of things. This is, in a sense, rewiring our brains. And there is now more and more evidence to suggest that the brain as it is rewiring itself follows some of the things of social media. So I'm not necessarily saying that we should at the end of this presentation take all of our cell phones out to the parking lot and smash them. I'm not calling for us to have a book burning or record burning or iPad burning kind of uh, situation that we used to sometimes see Christian groups in the past do. But I am recognizing that this is rewiring our brains in a variety of different ways. And so I think the first implication is parents listening to this need to think about the impact that this might be having on their kids. And number two, even if you're an adult, recognize that this is even happening to you and make sure that you are not so addicted to some of these social media devices. Rachel Cruz wrote a book, a popular book a while back called Live Your Life, Not Theirs. And it was somewhat a confession of her own addiction to Pinterest and looking at what other people have done in decorating and staging and so forth. And as a lot of people would do, uh, get ideas for, you know, whatever you're going to do. But the idea that, oh, I have to do that. And this insatiable nature of click, click, thumb, thumb, thumb. You know, I think you and I talked about last time we were on, on the broadcast was when I walk into church, Kirby, the number of people that have a phone and they're neck craned 
looking at their phone. They're not talking to people and interacting. They're looking mm-hmm. at their device. That can't be good for us, Kirby. Well, let's talk about a couple of different things. You, of course, one is concentration we'll get to in just a minute. But since you sort of raised the issue of addiction, it is striking to me because one of the people that put together Pinterest also acknowledged his addiction to Pinterest. And you can see that more and more people have been talking about that. And I remember George Barna years ago came out with an argument that there is cell phone addiction. And I first sort of rolled my eyes, as you and I tend to do sometimes, and oh, everything's an addiction. You know, you get a little weary of that. But then he began to to help us understand that if you look at the various criteria that is used by the American Psychiatric Association, you can see that addiction is taking place. And the story I love to tell is one of my former staff members, and matter of fact, if you go to our probe website, you'll see he's written on transhumanism and technology and a number of other things, but he used to be a professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, and when he was teaching technology, one of the requirements in the class was a digital fast, and the way you would do that digital fast is that he actually really required the students to go through a 48-hour digital fast. Now, the way they did that is the students were to hand over their cell phone, he would put it in a locked drawer in his office, and two days later, they could come back and get it. Well, Michael, you can imagine the response. First of all, you had a good number of the students that could not imagine two days without a cell phone, and so were willing to take a zero on the assignment. But those who at least willingly went through that, uh, sometimes when they would walk into his office two days later, they literally had sweat dripping off of their faces and could not even begin to function until they could put that darling in their hands and begin to use that again. And so if you wanted a good example of cell phone addiction or social media addiction, there's a great example of it. And one of the reasons why I think pastors and parents really need to think about this and maybe even talk about this on a more regular basis. I half teasing and half chastise our church, you know, open your phone or if you're a good Christian, your real Bible, you know, and I, I, I will sometimes hold up, literally, I'll hold up and go, this is called a pen. Get a pen, get a pad and bring your Bible to church. And I get, you know, the typical sneers and, you know, but, but it's interesting. You and I both love tech. I mean, Logos Bible software, oh, yes. I don't go a day without using the power of the worldwide internet that Al Gore gave us and that Bob Pritchard developed. And I love it, but you know, we, we have a cabin in Georgia, Kirby, and we have no internet. There's one bar and there's a blessing and curse because I can't get to like work on my tankless water heater that doesn't work. I can't look it up, Yes, but I tell people this is going to be a bring a book cabin. (laughs) 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 Do you remember the movie with, Anthony Hopkins was, was a ventriloquist, and he couldn't stop. I can't remember. It's it probably a horrible movie I'm talking about, a movie no one should ever watch. But there was a scene in there where the psychiatrist is trying to get him to put the thing down, and he can't mm-hmm. for five minutes. And I feel that way about my phone. It's like Anthony Hopkins and the ventriloquist. Anyway, I digress, which I do often. On your slides, you have a system, sort of a progression of television behavior and, and what's happening to us, and, and you list a number of things from naturalism, atheism, pantheism, occult Gnosticism, and you're categorizing the information we're getting. I want to move down that a little bit more because on your slides, at least, you don't talk about the social media aspect of this so much because even in the stats, you have television. What do you know about the amount of time on these devices, though? 
Because isn't this eclipsing television for most young people? Yes, it is. And as a matter of fact, here's the interesting thing, because I uh, actually sometimes speak on media, and so those first couple slides get into that. But what was so interesting is, is that television is the medium of first choice for younger children. Social media, and especially cell phones, are the medium of choice for older children. So you would expect that. Again, the basic numbers that came from, for example, the Nielsen Company are the by the time I'd average young person graduates from high school, he or she will have seen about 22,000 hours of television. To put that in perspective, they'll spend about 11,000 hours in a classroom. But most of that is front-loaded. They will have seen about 4,000 hours before they even go to preschool. So that's where television is. But interestingly enough, in the survey that I cite there from Kaiser Family Foundation, you saw television use increasing every year. And um, then, of course, you also see increase in use of computers, music, video games, movies, everything. You might say, well, is anything decreasing? Yeah, reading was decreasing. But you might notice that the chart there stopped about 10 years ago. And I think the reason for that is the Kaiser Family Foundation said, we can't really even make sense of it anymore because now we can't separate out music from computers and computers from texting because it all happens on these little devices. And so as a result, that is the case. But even if you look at the last numbers they use, they were talking about how they were consuming 10 hours of media in eight hours. You might say, how do you get 10 hours in eight hours? I'm not great at math, but that that was a problem. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's where my computer is on. I'm supposedly doing homework, but I'm also texting. I'm listening to music, and uh, I'm also supposedly reading a book at the same time. And so it's been more difficult to sort it out, but it illustrates again that As I said the other day to somebody who was a youth specialist that was in our studio, when I finished playing basketball in high school at night, I came home and I disconnected from everything because we didn't have the internet, we didn't have cell phones and all the rest. So there was no way that even if I was bullied, and that was rarely the case, but my brother sometimes was, there was no way that they could get at you and there was no way that there was more information and there was no attempt to say, well, what's somebody doing in this party? There was no way that you actually would be feeling like you were being left out. There was no FOMO because it wasn't happening. Now you walk into a room of a teenager and it's like a 24-7 news hour where there is all sorts of digital devices if you uh, check with some of the kids, maybe even in your own church, and ask, have you ever, when you wake up at 2 in the morning, picked up your cell phone, and almost 100%, they put up their hands. And so there is a place, first of all, to be bullied, to be uh, sexed, because sexting is a big issue right now. But it's also a place to uh, see, well, everybody else is having fun on TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, whatever it might be. And so this has changed the whole teen dynamic in very, significant ways. And so it's interesting, one of the things I cite is Kathy Koch's book, Screens and Teens, because Kathy Cook really spends some time talking about that. But I also put in a book, Glow Kids, by secular people, because you can now go, Michael, on to various TED Talks and go to very secular sites where they're also recognizing some of the potential dangers of social media. So it isn't just the Christians saying, well, we're really concerned about what they see on social media. Even the non-Christian world recognizes we've got some problems. I remember early on with the Internet, there were certain software interfaces like covenant eyes later on and so safe eyes but i remember putting that on my son's 
phone or whatever when he was a teenager in high school. And in less than a minute, he figured out how to work around it. Yes. And so you've got this illusion that a parent can control his or her child's interaction with social media. And the minute they, even if there's nothing at home, Kirby, he walks, he or she walks over to their neighbor's house, their friend's house, school, high school here in Middle Tennessee that our kids spent a few years in. They actually had a, a system that stopped the use of phones when you walked in. It basically disabled your service. The kids found a way to hack around it. You know, we talk about the helpless nature of parenting teens. This, I feel helpless for some of these folks, Kirby. I do too. And I think you can recognize, since I'm the old guy around the table here, that there was a time when, when I first started speaking about media and said, you know, you should reevaluate the location of your television set. If your family has a family computer, put it in the family room. So we've all been in situations where you walk by a TV set and you see an image that could turn almost anybody into a pillar of salt. You know what that's like. And that's a time when you can kind of click and turn it off and say, wait a minute, we don't agree with some of the things I just saw on the screen there or whatever. But now, of course, you don't have that ability. And even if you almost sound like um, Amish or Mennonite, where you actually have tremendous limitation in terms of the kind of media input into your home, you just pointed out the problem of social crabgrass. And that is where I've always said that if you look at my lawn, it does pretty well. But I've recognized my lawn is totally dependent on my neighbor's lawns, because if they have crabgrass pretty soon, I have crabgrass. In our household, we were able to kind of rein things in pretty good, but I recognized the problem of social crabgrass because there were certain things we didn't say, certain things we didn't do, certain movies we didn't go to, and all the rest. But as soon as my kids would go out the front door and down the street to the home of the Hellions, uh, the social crabgrass blew back into my yard. And a lot of that has to do not only with the technology, but with parenting. Because, Michael, I know you've talked about this before. I don't know about you, but even though I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, I mean, I was born in Berkeley, but even there, there was this conspiracy of the parents against the kids. Because I learned very quickly that my parents had a set of rules, and I found out to my horror that my neighbors had the same set of rules. And even more to my horror, when I showed up at school, they had the same set of rules. And matter of fact, if I got in trouble in school, it, it was a double because I got it at yeah. home, got it at school and got it at home. Now, it's not the conspiracy of the parents against the kids. It's a conspiracy of the kids against the parents. And the kids are playing the parents off saying, well, they got to get an iPhone at the age of five. Why don't I? They got to go dating at the age of 10. Why can't I? And so it's, I think, coming back to parenting as much as the whole issue of social media. So I'll recognize it is really hard to control some of this, but you also have to recognize it's the parents that go and buy some of those video games, buy some of that social media, because these kids don't drive until they're age 16. So if a 10-year-old is able to watch video games that are really questionable go to movies that are really questionable or have access to a phone at a very young age that will allow them to see almost anything with a click of a button, then the parents need to have some responsibility there as well. Your comment about where you grew up reminds me of a story Dennis Rainey often told about a new neighbor in his neighborhood, and he did something at his new friend's house, and the mom gave him a whooping and took him by the ear back home <laughs> to Dennis's mother and told, you know, the mom what Dennis did. He was sent to his room. 
this woman and his mom talk for a long period of time. The mother comes in the bedroom, gives Dennis another whipping <laughs> for embarrassing her in front of her new friend. <laughs> now we all go to jail. Aren't if we around did much that. anymore, but you, you, yeah, some of us yeah. uh, that are a little older can remember that. Yeah, I, I can too. Yeah, and there were certain houses you didn't go in because they were really strict. Okay, let's get back to our some of your things. Media and the brain. You have a slide on this about concentration vis-a-vis creativity. It says there's a distraction overload. It leaves the user with where was I in a brain lock, a continuous partial attention, not multitasking, which by the way, MIT proved you can't multitask. That's right. There's no such thing. You just can re-engage in an interruption. And then creativity, no time to think or daydream. Expand on that some, please. Two points. First of all, this idea of concentration, it is really striking because we do know that if you are in the midst of doing something and the phone buzzes or flashes or whatever, then oftentimes you take it and then you have this Oh, where was I? And that's one of those kind of brain lock situations. And of course, as you get older, sometimes you walk into a room and say, now, why did I walk into that room? But this is something that has been a cause of some concern. There are people, Michael, writing about the dangers of that because they have now linked one or two, not a lot, but one or two plane crashes that came because somebody was interrupted as they were going through their checklist in the cockpit. Now, that's dangerous, but you know as well as I do how many times maybe when you were heading up a group in a committee, and I know you've done that at Moody, and I know you've done it in church, where somebody's looking at their phone, you're saying, are you even paying attention? And that's, of course, the whole issue of concentration. And that's certainly enough. And as you point out, people think they can multitask. Well, really, it's continuous partial attention. We recognize that whatever you're focused on, the other one at best gets 40% of your attention, which is why in a lot of states, you are not allowed to actually be on your cell phone while you're driving, because that is also very dangerous. What a novel idea. What a concept. <laughs> and again, there are very good reasons for that, because yeah. uh, first of all, let's face it, the women sometimes are a little better at the multitasking than we are, but nobody's really as good as they think they are, because we've done brain scans to know that. So right. that's the first thing. The other C is creativity. Now, you might remember some of the conversations that we've had at Dallas Theological Seminary on the issue of creativity. Remember, Prof used to teach a course on creativity, but it wasn't just that. I mean, again, I mentioned TED Talks. I guess I show the occasionally I like to watch TED Talks, but there have been all sorts of very significant TED Talks over the years that have lamented the loss of creativity. And so whether it was Howard Hendricks talking about that at Dallas Seminary, whether it's some of these brain specialists, and a lot of that has to do with no think time. A good illustration of that is a number of years ago, Michael, I had a Bible study where virtually everybody in the Bible study worked in the area of marketing, advertising, or the arts. And especially the advertising people is interesting because almost all of these individuals that came up with commercials that I think most of our listeners would understand and remember, they said that most of the great ideas that they came up with for commercials or for ad campaigns, for ministry outreaches or whatever, came when their brain was sort of in neutral. For the guys, it was when they were shaving or maybe in the shower. For women, it was when they were putting on makeup or when they were driving. It gives you some think time. And we don't have any think time anymore with this kind of 24-7 demand of social media, sometimes that daydreaming that takes place when you put things together, and then put that with Psalm 46, you know, be still and know that I am God. And today, 
People aren't, matter of fact, be still probably could be as easily translated chill. And how many people chill? And how many people go to a cabin in Georgia where they're disconnected from the digital world? And that's where some of the most creative things are taking place. So there are some really concerning issues about social media. Again, use it, but recognize that just because you have this media, make sure that the media doesn't own you sometimes. Some common objections you point out, people say, well, that's reality. I'm just killing time. It won't affect me. No one knows. It's just entertainment. What we have is it's reality. Well, I mean, newsflash, reality TV is not reality. (laughs) And uh, the kind of hours that individuals spend watching television, visiting websites, watching videos, (laughs) all the rest, certainly the level of sex and violence. And of course, I've done quite a bit in other booklets and even on uh, the Probe website on the impact of this. And we recognize that what you see, read, and hear does have an impact on your worldview does have an impact on your behavior, so that's the case. It's just killing time. You know, I live in the real world. There are times when you just want to go into a movie theater, you just want to watch a movie, and you just, you know, I want to turn my brain off, you know. It's just an action flick or something like that. Or, you know, I just want to read a good book that isn't necessarily advancing the Christian life, but it's just kind of a thriller I want to read. That's fine. There's no problem with that. But we also recognize that the people that spend disproportionate amounts of time in the media and all different forms of media, they don't perceive the world accurately. And uh, there have been, as a matter of fact, in this thing, I talk about one of the studies that came from the Annenberg School of Communication, the University of Pennsylvania, in which they found that heavy TV viewers did not perceive the world accurately. They had a very biased view of the world. Well, now we have the same kind of studies that come out with the internet and people that are really tied to digital devices. And of course, the no one will know. You've talked about this issue before, whether it's pornography or all sorts of other things. We recognize people will know. I mean, you might be able to fool some of the people some of the time. You might even be able to fool all the people all of the time. I doubt it. But you're not going to fool God. And there's just a sense in which I don't want people to think that we're anti-entertainment. We're anti-media. We're using media right now to communicate to them. But I think a wise and discerning Christian would really begin to want to evaluate how much comes in their eye gate and ear gate. And that's really what we're calling for when we talk about this issue of social media. I was talking to a group of guys the other night, and it's common among any group you get together. What movies have you seen lately? Have you gone back to the movie after COVID? And it always, it sort of irritates me because it's like, can we talk about something besides what movie we saw? And they were going off on some things I have not seen. And I said, you know what I've been doing lately is watching old classics. I've been buying redone like Blu-rays on occasion, 4Ks of like Citizen Kane, The Man Who Knew Too Much, To Catch a Thief, you know, I've watched them multiple times because there's so much art direction and creativity and they're clean. You know, there's innuendo, but I don't have to worry about Cindy walking in yes. and saying, what in the world are you watching? Or no, she walks in and goes, are you watching that again? Yeah, I'm watching it again. I like To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever, you know, but it's striking that there is a wholesome place for that. And it's interesting in the conversations with Christian groups, whether you're a fellowship or, you know, a coffee or someone's house. Just, you know, what book have you read lately? Right. And it, that, it's all it takes. And I find two things people don't read, number one. But two, it may motivate someone 
when they hear others talk with excitement about a particular book they're reading. I just interviewed a man named Eric Ortlund, L-U-N-D, on a book on Job. I just got the book on my device because it's not in print yet. Remarkable book on suffering and God's grace. And you read this book, Kirby, and everybody suffers. Everybody's got problems in life. And he looks at Job in an interesting way, some things I would never have observed. I could talk to that guy for five hours. Yes. As opposed to flipping through Instagram or whatever it might be. But that takes an act of the will. I'm prattling. Back to parents. Help parents out, Kirby. Because, again, they go down the street. They go to school I mean, goodness, now we're giving him a notebook to do school on. Uh, a friend of mine teaches law, and he said back before COVID, he'd walk around the class. He goes, they've got their Instagram account open, their Amazon shopping list, and a little area where they're taking notes. They're not learning law. No. They're living in this social media world. And again, so, that's, I mean, that's a concern. And I just think, again, there is a value, as you said, in books, printed books. There's a value in holding the Bible in your hand, as much as uh, many of us also have digital devices and the rest. And, and so I just think that parents need to start thinking about what they can do. Now, recognize, as I said before, start with something like the television. It may not be as a big a deal with your teenagers, but it's already starting at a very young age. And so think about the location where their television set is and try to emphasize the fact that there is something called the off button and set a good testimony because one of the statistics that I have used in the past, and I even have a graphic that goes with it that came out of all things the New York Times, is the amount of time that parents spend on the internet compared to their kids. And there's, as you might imagine, a real correlation. And the picture showed this kid under the table with kind of like like a small little cell phone while the father is up there on the kitchen table on his computer. In other words, set the example. So if the parents yeah. set the example, that is the case. And so I'm part of the Irma Bombeck school that says <laughs> that any man that can watch three consecutive college football games should be declared legally dead. So I'm convinced that sometimes the worst offender in terms of media are some of us guys out there. And so it might be good for us to spend just a little bit of time turning the TV off and setting the tone for some things in terms of the internet requiring when you sit around the family table, you know, to actually say, everybody put up their cell phone. Now, there's some ministries and some churches, some uh, restaurants, and even some families that have a box where you put the cell phone in the box so we can have some conversation. Again, find out real quickly who's addicted because they just can't bear that. And there have been all sorts of like Netflix specials and others that have talked about the attempt by the social media companies to even get you more addicted to these devices. That Netflix special on social media is chilling. Yes, it is. And that's old. Yes, and again, it's just one example, but it's one yeah. that I mentioned because it was it went yeah. viral. There have been many other studies like that, but that one is probably best known simply because it gave you kind of a visual image of what is taking place. So again, I'm not against people that work in Silicon Valley. I know some of these individuals, but I also understand only so well that their goal is to try to get you to spend as much time looking at a screen as possible. And you know, Michael, here's a thought about this. 
we know over the years different individuals that work in an area of media that don't actually let their children participate in that media. You might remember Peggy Waymire, who was a religion reporter for WFAA and for ABC News. And one time I'm talking to Peggy and uh, she said something about, I, I don't let my girls watch the news. I go, well, wait a minute, you, you do the news and you don't let your kids watch the news? He's, oh no, it's just, this is not helpful for them. And you probably have heard stories about Steven Spielberg that wouldn't let his younger kids watch his films. And there are people in Silicon Valley that I'm aware of that have waited a long time before they would even allow their kids to have access to a cell phone. And so if the people that are working in the industry sometimes are concerned about this, maybe that should tell some of the parents that your child can survive without a cell phone at the age of eight or nine or 10. So I hate when people ask me these questions, so I have to ask the expert this question. So what age, and granted children are different, what age is generally appropriate bandwidth to let a child start working on a tablet or a phone? Yeah, and if you could postpone it till teen years, that's tough. Now, that's hard to postpone it because oftentimes they're seeing all their friends get that, and it's kind of like dating. You know, if you tell your five-year-old that you're not going to date till you're 15, they go, okay. Uh, but as they get to be about 13, all of a sudden they go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what did I sign up for? So there's a sense in which you can explain that. But even at those ages where you say, I think it's important for my child to be able to contact me. We do have flip phones and all sorts of things that do exist. So if you are just absolutely convinced that your child has to have access to you by using a phone, we still have, by the way, cell phones that other people use. doesn't mean they have to have them. We still have some places where you can have pay phones and the rest. But those, again, are things that if you have to have that for all sorts of reasons, Try to have ones that don't give them access to every digitalized piece of information in the world. And so I would recommend that. But somewhere along the line, as they get into their teen years, of course, they're going to need that. I would highly recommend that educators rethink. And that's what you find in some of these books I've referenced and even some of the things in our little booklet on social media where they're starting to say maybe this whole idea of learning by screen isn't working very well. And I've got a commentary coming out next week in which the latest survey shows us that learning online during the lockdown was an absolute unmitigated disaster. There were surveys that were done before. This most recent one comes from researchers at Brown University and a variety of other prestigious universities all saying what you kind of know. And Michael, I've said before that we spend millions of dollars every year doing research studies to find out what most mothers with any kind of common sense already know. (laughs) And so nobody's surprised by this. Learning online did not work very well. So why do you think that then having a cell phone or an iPad or a computer in the classroom is going to work any better? I think we know that. Uh, I want to talk about a, a delicate subject, and I had read something a while back about pornography use and what it does to young men's brains, and there seems to be a connection between ED in young men who are spending an inordinate amount of time on 
pornography sites? I'm sure you've done some research in this area. Well, again, we have a booklet on pornography that actually someone else wrote, but I have done chapters in other books. On like Even when one of those books I think you were forced to read when I was one of your teachers. Hey, that was a great, your, your class, just as a caveat tour here. So I, I'm doing my doctoral program. I'm about ready to hang it up. And Kirby Anderson taught a class on ethics. And I went, okay. And I think you had 11 texts. And to this day, I have told this story many times. I would have never read any of those books left alone. And I still have Herbert Schlossberg's Idols for Destruction more earmarked than any book I've read, like in that kind of genre. I mean, commentaries aside, and your ethics books. And I'm looking at your Christian ethics and plain language, the updated version of it. But yes, I loved that class and that that reinvigorated me in my DMIN program. So thank you to that. Well, and again, just to <laughs> tie in the two issues, we've talked a little bit about neuroplasticity and brain studies and all the rest that is there. When I wrote the original books, the uh, issue of pornography was something that you had to go to a particular area of town to obtain, and the internet became the ultimate brown wrapper, so that individuals now could get access to internet very easily, which is sad, but nevertheless true. But the new addition to that, and there have been some very good studies and some very good books that have come out on this topic, look at the impact of brain studies. And first of all, what it does is it actually reinvigorates those particular neural pathways. And so then you have certain kinds of brain hormones. We're talking about adrenaline, norepinephrine, and a variety of others, as well as oxytocin. And so these actually lock those images into your brain. So that's not good in terms of the fact that, let's say later on, after watching all that pornography or seeing pornographic images, you want to get those out of your mind, and that's more difficult to do. Not impossible, but memorizing scripture and accountability are very key. But back to your point, there are physiological impacts to that as well, that the only way you can be stimulated, and I'll try to be careful how I say this, are by seeing those same images that stimulated you before. And so you, if you want to think of the brain as like a highway, if you want the highway that is tied to reacting to your married spouse, that's going to be one highway, but if you have been developing a side road off of the interchange, or maybe that becomes a four-lane freeway, and the only way you become stimulated is by watching those visual images or seeing those, you have these sad stories of individuals that say, I've got to go look at something before I can even be involved intimately with my spouse. And the reason I say spouse is uh, years ago, Michael, when I was teaching on this, I was talking about uh, pornography in men, and right afterwards, I had this one woman just in my face saying, you know, you've got to just get to the real world because the issue is this isn't just a problem for men. It's a problem for women. It's a problem yes. for me. And so I began to realize that while it, again, is tending to be more of a male issue in terms of the impact that pornography has on the men, the impact it's having on the women is also devastating as well. The uh, acronym or the abbreviation is PEA, P, which stands for beta phenol. I'm going to stop right there and not sound stupid. I remember Floyd Sharp, a mutual friend of ours, who talked about the research on PEA and how when you stimulate a brain in any area with this type of natural stimulant over a period of time, you know, sexual intimacy wasn't meant to go on for hours. 
you know, there's a relationship concept there. Sexual intimacy is an expression between a husband and wife. But when you overdose, so to speak, in this PEA, that as you articulate it, it's very hard to get it back. There have been some studies that said, basically, for lack of a better nomenclature, detoxing from pornography over a period of time, the brain can reset back to your highway illustration. Right. So it's not quite as difficult to re-engage in proper intimacy. You know, what I find striking about this, Kirby, and I, I've said this many times in the pulpit, and it, it reflects in my own life too, sin is a shortcut that we think somehow is going to provide joy or happiness or pleasure. It's always an illegitimate substitute for a legitimate need. Well said. God has given us a legitimate way to enjoy sexual intimacy that is rich and meaningful and deep and lasting and far more adjectives than the hijacking of pornography for people. I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this. You know, how do we encourage not only parents raising teens, but couples that are, you know, estranged in their relationships that God's design for these intimacy is a wonderful thing. Yes. Well, again, I think what you just talked about is you can detox. And again, so I want to emphasize that just as we've been talking about our concerns as Christians about social media have secular ones. Uh, The other day, there was an article in the Washington Post from an individual that was a very secular-minded individual who nevertheless admitted that he was addicted to pornography. And he said, you know, I finally concluded I have to focus my brain on something else. And so he came up with the idea of fishing. Now, again, it was kind of interesting because he lives in the Washington, D.C. area. You've lived there as well. You know, not sure I want to go fishing in the Potomac River, but whatever. Okay. But, you know, so he said, I didn't even really like fishing, but he spent so much time focusing his attention on fishing that eventually that was a way to sort of break his addiction to pornography. And I thought that was a good illustration that here he wasn't even using a biblical principle necessarily, but he was using common sense, recognizing if all of your focus and attention us on developing those neurons, what you have to do is you have to now starve those neurons in your brain and activate some others. And so you can see how uh, everything from reading God's Word, memorizing Scripture, rebuilding that relationship with your spouse, going on dates again, even when you're maybe not willing to do that, but you know, trying to force yourself to feel some of that romance that used to exist, those are ways in which you're sort of making your brain go down a different pathway. And eventually, if you're willing to take the time to do that, you can see, as you said, a way of detoxing. So I love to use the illustration of this guy that, interestingly enough, decided that fishing was his solution. And of course, if he was a Christian, he could have said, well, spending time in God's Word is, but (laughs) we can learn a lesson there. If you take your mind off of these things that are causing addictions, eventually, maybe you can break the hold that they have on your life. I was going to open our time together with Paul's admonition, instruction in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And I paused for a second. Swindoll said, not sure it was original. The problem with the living sacrifice, it keeps crawling off the altar. Yes. But anyway, I urge you to present yourself a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And it's so practical, Kirby, by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And James Allen, you know, as a man thinketh, so much 
we do know about neuroplasticity, I'm a bit of a fan of Daniel Siegel and Michael Moskowitz and the brain way of healing and some of the stuff they're tracking just in the medical realm of even early dementia and so forth. That There's a way to re- use the highway illustration, two lanes, four lanes, expressway, downhill. You know, there's ways to change that. On your website, and we'll put these in the show notes, you have a number of links. I wanted to point out a couple of them. You have information at probe.org on media and discernment, the new media and society, sex and violence on television, music and the Christian, film and the Christian, video games, and then you have three resources. And again, we'll have these in the show notes, your updated version of Christian ethics and plain language. And I I encourage folks, um, you need to read widely. I, I try to read a book a week, sometimes more than that. It just depends. Sometimes I don't have the time because I'm like Kirby. We're interviewing people and we need to get a sense of the folks we're talking to. But I find reading, it makes me think about things I wouldn't normally think about left to myself. And again, reading is helpful because it exposes to ideas. As a guy that writes a commentary every day, I find that reading helps me be a better writer, and uh, writing makes me more precise. And so those are some really important skills. And back to my favorite line, leaders are readers, and readers are leaders. Do you find, it's a rabbit trail, do you find people are still reading less and less, and why? Yeah, they are reading less because they are so assaulted by media, Uh, but I still spend time with a fair number of people that do try to read a book a week. Of course, I get to read a lot more than that because those are ones that are forced upon me, but I also am reading other ones on the side. So I see it's sort of like a split. You know, we have people generally that are not reading, and you've seen the numbers. These are scary numbers of the number of people that said, I have never read a book since graduating Uh. high school. And then you have others that are still reading on a regular basis, and you probably have seen some of these posts on the things that Elon Musk are reading and Bill Gates are reading and all sorts of people that are kind of cutting-edge individuals. And sometimes when I, by the way, again, talk about the value of media, I'll see something on YouTube and I go, or a tech talk, and I go, okay, I'm buying that book. Amazon yeah. knows who I am yeah. uh, very easily. Yeah, yeah, boy, do so they. Yeah. That's where the two come together. But if you're not reading, you're really at the whim of the forces of our culture. And if you want to just be conformed to this culture, then don't renew your mind. And as a result, it kind of gets back to being captive. That gets back to the survey we talked about last time, because in Colossians 2.8, we are warned by Paul not to be taken captive by false philosophies. So that word captive, that Greek word captive, shows up again in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, in which he says we should take every thought captive. Thought cap. And so I think it's kind of a zero-sum game. If you're not taking every <laughs> thought captive, then the culture will take you captive, and media is even more effective at doing that. And so if it was true in the first century, how much more true that is in the 21st century? When we lived in Nova, D.C., we had this phrase that when you live in Washington, D.C., you think you're going to make a difference. Also known as Potomac fever, you think you're going to make a difference. And I think unplugging for many people is they feel they'll they'll no longer be influencers. They'll no longer be making a difference. And I made a comment on a podcast or on a sermon, I forget, and there's a number of people in our church who their influence is on social media. And one woman sincerely came to me and she said, you know, should I stop doing what I'm doing? And I said, you know, I don't know how to answer that question. I can't really give you counsel. But if that's the consuming goal of your life, 
that by fashion or a lot of direct home marketing, if that's really your existence, it's a good question for you to analyze. Are you really making a difference because you agree with a tweet that someone else you know, put out there? But we need good stuff on there. Uh, anyway, I, I digress. Other resources on your site we're going to put up is the Arts Media and Culture Booklet by Kirby. And then the booklet we've been talking about, A Biblical View on Social Media. We'll have all that information. Or you can just go right to the Probe website. Spell his name correctly, and you'll get there sooner. K-E-R-B-Y, Kirby Anderson. You can find him anywhere on any search platform, whether it's Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever browser. I, I, who was the guy at the end of Netflix? He was one of the guys on Inside of Social Media, and he had one word at the end. It was a search engine. It wasn't brave, I think. He said brave or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> get out of Google. Get out of Microsoft. Right. Go to another subset because they don't know everything about you. <laughs> anyway, final thoughts about how we think critically, Kirby, about how we encourage one another on this path? Well, again, a lot of this gets back to the issue of discernment, and we certainly tend to use that word quite a bit. But if you think about this, how many scripture passages, if you type in words like discernment, sound mind, valuation, critical, you know, the various kinds of things that remind us of that, even making sound judgment. We have so often have young people that say, well, no, you're not supposed to make a judgment because Matthew 7, 1. Well, that's completely mis reading that passage. Taken out Actually, of context. We are yeah. admonished by Jesus. We're admonished by Peter and Paul and everyone else to make sound decisions. And this is an area where we're going to need more discernment perhaps than ever, because some of it is fake. Some of it is actually leading you away from biblical ideas. And so I think discerning Christians are what we're calling for today here in In Context. Appreciate you so much. One final comment. When the COVID hit, I started a WebEx group and I handpicked nine, 10 really smart guys, and we read through Confessions. We read a couple C.S. Lewis books, and now we're reading John Hanna's two volumes set on church history. And the accountability of you got to read and log on at lunchtime at Monday, it's been a blast. And to a man, a couple of them are rather reluctant to take on the two-volume textbook that Hannah wrote. And I said, look, we'll have fun together. And one in particular who was most resistant to taking it on, he's probably told me, oh, 15 times, Michael, I'm loving this book. <laughs> but it was that accountability of let's read it and talk about it together. So good. And uh, so good. it's such a great motivation for people, you know, pick a book, get four or five of your friends that are smart or smarter than you. I like that. And say, let's read a book and get together on Zoom once a week. That's a good way to use technology. Kirby Anderson, uh, again, check him out. Love you. Appreciate you so much. Thanks for all your efforts to help us in the kingdom to think and be men and women who grow in Christ. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.